Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the state historian at UConn Hartford and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. This is the second in our series of talks presented by Connecticut's Old State House about Connecticut's Constitution of 1818. In this episode, Professor Richard Buell does a deep dive into the political climate that led to the state's first constitution. It's a good idea to have listened to the first in the series, episode 45, by yours truly. But if you haven't, don't worry. Connecticut Explored publisher Elizabeth Norman will fill in some of the background you'll need throughout the episode. This episode is sponsored by attorney Peter Bowman. Find out more at bowman.legal and Connecticut Humanities, co-publisher of Connecticut Explored. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Rebecca Tabor Conover. I am the head of public programs here at the Old State House. We would like to thank Connecticut Humanities who provided the funds to support this series. Today's program is on the collapse of Connecticut Federalist dominance in our state. Today's speaker, Dr. Richard Buell, Jr., is a graduate of Amherst College and head of PhD in history at Harvard University. He taught American history at Wesleyan University for 40 years, staying on afterwards for a decade as a resident scholar. During that time, he published six monographs and one reference work on the American Revolutionary Era. Please join me in in welcoming Dr. Buell to the Old State House. Hey, Grading the Nutmeggers. This is Elizabeth Norman, publisher of Connecticut Explored. Before Professor Buell gets started, let me set the stage. It's the first decades of the new nation, this experiment in democracy we call the United States of America. Out of the unity of the revolutionary spirit, a political divide is emerging, and it's making people nervous. There's a lingering lack of consensus about whether there should be a strong federal government guiding the nation, or whether the states should be strong. The sides are aligned with one of the two great European rivals, England and France, who continue to wage war against each other. We get drawn into the quasi-war with France in 1798, and our second war with England, the War of 1812. In power are the Federalists, represented by our first two presidents, Washington and Adams. They're pro-federal government and pro-British. Connecticut's leadership, known as the Standing Order, are Federalists. Lining up on the other side are the Jeffersonian Republicans, or Democratic Republicans. They're pro-strong states, and they're pro-France. In Connecticut, the Jeffersonian Republicans are chomping at the bit for their share of power, especially once Thomas Jefferson becomes president in 1801. But the structure of Connecticut state government, still operating under the Royal Charter of 1662, is stacked against change. Soon, though, series of events, international, national, and local, as Professor Buell explains, will cause that standing order to sit down and take a back seat. Just how tense was this period? Could violence have erupted here as it did in Baltimore in 1812? Professor Buell. My uh, title is Collapse of Connecticut Federalism, a Necessary Precursor to the Constitution of 1818. Some of you were probably at Walter's wonderful presentation six weeks ago. I believe its title was, It Was the Best of Times, the, the Worst of Times, and that's a, 
uh, fr what phrase taken from Dickens' Tale of Two Cities, and he used it to describe Connecticut leading up to the Constitution of 1818. And as I listened to it, I thought, woe is me. Perhaps the most appropriate title would be A Hard Act to Follow, or at least subtitle. And so I was wondering, as I listened to him, what I would do, but I actually figured out something to do. And that, that was to address an issue which may seem like a non-issue to some of you, but if you oppose people who think, on the one hand, that it's the best of all possible worlds, on the other, the worst of all possible worlds, how do you get them together? And we didn't uh, have a violent resolution of this conflict, so you might say it's not an issue, but actually it's more of an issue than you might think, I think. And I'm going to try and uh, at least support that. First of all, you can't say we don't do that sort of thing because we did it. Did the, we had some spectacular riots in Baltimore in 1812, just after the declaration of the War of 1812, and they involved the uh, violent suppression of the Federal Republican, which was a Federalist newspaper that denounced the war as it began, and for that it was uh, trashed by a mob. And then the publisher, Alexander L. Hansen, went off to to Alexandria, Virginia, and uh, he resumed publication, but that wasn't enough for him. He wanted to resume publication in downtown Baltimore, which he did, uh, with, with the help of Light Horse Harry Lee and a, about 30 other Federalists, and they acquired a well-built house, which uh, General Lee said was defensible, and issued another issue of the Federal Republican, and this is what happened. A whole-scale riot, and in the front are the rioters, and to the left is Fort Hansen. They've already killed one figure here. This is a militia who's going to try and break it up. They negotiate a, a deal. The, the rioters retire. The uh, militia takes the, the uh, inhabitants of Fort Hansen off to jail for their own safety. The militia goes home. The jailer goes home. The mob reassembles and beats the former inhabitants of Fort Hansen to jelly. And they actually kill one guy. They maim uh, Lee for the rest of his life. And so we, we don't behave uniformly nicely. So that's not, not a uh, justification for not taking the possibility that this could have led to violence seriously. But you might say, we are the land of steady habits. We don't do that sort of thing. We don't engage in mob rule, but I think that doesn't do justice to where Hartford found itself in 1814, because after Connecticut accepted that the, the Hartford Convention would take place in this very building, the Madison administration responded by assigning the 25th Regiment to winter here and recruit. Wait, what? President Madison sent federal troops to Hartford in 1814? In the category of seemed like a good idea at the time, one of the major missteps of Connecticut's Federalists was joining up with the Massachusetts Federalists and a smattering of representatives from other New England states at a meeting that became known as the Hartford Convention. In the midst of the War of 1812, a war that Connecticut opposed, to quote Professor Matt Warshower from his story in our summer 2012 issue, Quote, the Hartford Convention represented a last-ditch effort on the part of New England Federalists to reclaim the region's former eminence. The country was expanding, but New England's influence was shrinking. 
In late December and into early January 1815, convention delegates meeting at the old state house hammered out four resolutions and seven proposed amendments to the U.S. Constitution, one of which was to eliminate the famous three-fifths clause, which awarded southern states additional representatives in the house based on the size of their slave populations. There's a whiff of secession in the air. That's why the 25th is sent to Hartford. Some of the officers and soldiers were veterans of the July 1814 Battle of Lundy's Lane near Niagara Falls, during which Americans withdrew after suffering heavy casualties. The Madison administration responded by assigning the 25th Regiment to winter here and recruit. And their presence was extremely unwelcome because they were doing something that the Federalist fathers of the town vehemently opposed, which was recruiting for the army. But they were doing other things as well because the officers were the, the most exciting social addition to the town that it had seen in a long time. And one of the customs in, in this period of our history was to have these autumn, winter, and spring cotillions. And there were small parties uh, held in, in private homes often. And um, what, what this represented was a shifting of a social center of gravity from the Federalists to the Republicans because the, the most exciting thing in town were these heroes from um, the Battle of Lundy's Lane. Then when the convention actually gets going, the uh, 25th is even, it misbehaves even more and it gets into files of drummers and fifers and flag bearers and they march around all over town and they march around this building while they're trying to deliberate. And uh, this is uh, somewhat distracting, uh, to put it mildly, uh, uh, quite apart from, from its utility in reminding the convention that if they wanted to secede, that would be disputed by force. So uh, I'm not saying that uh, this breeds violence in itself, but after the convention disbands, the common council of the uh, town passes a stringent law, a bylaw, which they're empowered by the legislature to do, to forbid parades, and they actually levy a fine on every violation. And then the Connecticut legislature comes up here for an emergency session in January of 1815, and they pass a draconian law whose intent is to nullify the Conscription Act of 18. 14, which is a uh, statute of Congress designed to try and beef up the army. And this law imposes a $100 penalty on anyone who's advocating enlisting in the army and a $500 penalty if you actually succeed in getting a recruit, which uh, as Colonel Thomas Jessup, the commander of the 25th and hero of Lundy's, Lundy's Lane, reported to his superiors amounted to nullification. And he obviously wanted authority to do something about this, and you can imagine what that would have been. The point is that there are people on both sides willing to push matters to a crisis. I can't guarantee a crisis would have occurred, but there's a lot more going on here than you might want to think, and ferocious tensions are involved. And so what I'm going to address is where these ferocious tensions come from. And what I have to contribute to um, the conversation about the Constitution of 1818 is uh, that to understand what's going on in Connecticut, you really have to look beyond the borders of Connecticut. And the answer, I'm going to suggest, is it's really located in an 
international drama centered on the French Revolution, and that those who think this is the best of times actually are scared to death of the French Revolution, and that unites all the desperate uh, constituencies in the Federalist Coalition. So uh, why were they so scared? Well, this is what they thought of when you said French Revolution to them. Destruction, violence of, uh, of property and, and people, followed by the execution of Louis XVI, and that's, that's just the first of more than 3,000 people who have their heads severed from their shoulders and over the next year and a half in the Place de Concorde, followed by your friend Boney, who um, first of all turns the artillery against the uh, people of Paris and then goes out and conquers all the neighbors of France and then finally makes himself into the emperor, which is not exactly what you want coming out of a Republican revolution. So I would suggest that Frederick's ideology is essentially a defensive response to France's descent into savagery and its evolution into despotism. And uh, that may be hard to, what, believe. Uh, why should um, they be worried? Because after all, we are the United States of America, and that's, you know, Europe. That's so far away. But what you have to remember is that France at this time had the reputation of being the leading nation in terms of culture and civility. So this was very disturbing. And we aren't very old, and we're not quite sure which way we're going. <laughs> uh, we, we don't feel that stable, particularly the people in Connecticut don't feel that stable. So um, if, if you take that attitude, then and there happens to be a war uh, between the uh, great European powers of Britain and and France during this period, then you will come to look on Britain as your stable defense against both Napoleonic despotism, uh, but beyond that, believe it or not, such things as Christianity and even civilization itself. So th 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 there is a tendency in ideology to escalate the stakes, and this is how they, they go in this particular time. And the obverse of that is you look in your domestic adversaries as allies of the tra hostile transnational forces, and um, you worry about their partiality for France courting a war with Britain that will jacobinize America. And the reason why they felt it would jacobinize America is because during the revolution we've been thrust into the arms of the French as allies, and it had affected uh, how we developed, and we were, it was legitimate to worry that that would be even worse on the next time around. But beyond that, you know, even religious dissenters who are Christians uh, can be construed as compromising the attempt to uh, wage the essential uh, defense of Christianity against uh, infidelity. So that, that, those are ideological issues which are peculiar to the period, and that to me is what epitomizes Federalist ideology at this point. So what I'm going to argue is that there are consequences to adopting this worldview. First of all, it's essentially a defensive uh, perspective, and uh, it is not terribly well represented, I think, uh, um, by the, the idea of it was the best of times. They may have said it was the best of times, but I don't think they really thought that. 
Secondly, I'm going to argue it led to self-destructive actions, which precipitated their collapse. My title is Collapse of Federalism. That suggests they're doing it to themselves. It's not being done to them. And thirdly, ironically, and there'll be some other ironies in this presentation, it also helps to lead, pave a way to a peaceful resolution. This is a good place to take a break and hear a message from our state historian. When we come back, Professor Buell takes us all the way back to the beginning, Connecticut's Charter of 1662, and how the Federalists operated for more than 100 years. I'm Walt Woodward. I want to tell you about a brand new initiative by the Office of the State Historian and Connecticut Humanities. It's called Today in Connecticut History. Every day of the year at todayinctshistory.com, we tell you about a fascinating, often little-known event that happened on that very day in the past. Todayinctshistory.com provides an article, great images, and audio about the event from our daily WNPR broadcast. You can even subscribe to receive a morning email telling you what big event happened in this state on that date. This is your history, and it's worth knowing, and I hope you'll visit todayinctshistory.com soon. Todayinctshistory.com, because big things happen in this state on this date. Now let's go back to the beginning, which is the Charter of 1662. That may seem like an ironic place to begin to identify the origins of the Federalist insecurity because they're clinging to a form of government that essentially is, a, is uh, the Charter of 1662 and 1818. And the problem with this government initially was it was pretty popular. It, it, uh, they construed it in such a way that it mandated two popular elections of representatives to a General Assembly a year, and that was checked by, could only be checked by a governor, deputy governor, and 12 assistants who were elected annually. And they did develop electoral procedures to ensure, try and ensure the stability of the uh, governor, deputy governor, and assistants by almost guaranteeing their being elected from year to year until they perished. But that, that didn't always work, as we shall shortly see. Now, a popular government, you say, what's wrong with that? Well, what's wrong with that in 1662 is it's just after the Cromwellian period, and that, that hasn't given excessively popular governments a terribly good reputation. And uh, this particular government is faced with an array of problems, which they handle rather well, though I'm not sure they enjoy doing it in the process. They absorbed New Haven Colony against its will. It hadn't been consulted in the Charter of 1662, and that was followed by King Philip's War. That's followed by a very dramatic expansion in population after 1690, when the population triples in about 30 years, which is an unheard of rate of expansion in the late 17th and early 18th century, and it's largely due to internal migration. King Philip's War had the effect of neutralizing or eliminating the presence of a Native American. That means that eastern Massachusetts is sending all its sons and daughters who need new uh, lands to into into that part of the state. And if so what, what we're having in, in the period from 1690 until 1730, uh, essentially, is um, internal migration uh, into unoccupied lands and the rapid development of this. 
which leads to some interesting disorders. Now, I'm not going to bore you with going over this again because Dick Bushman has done it in the classic fashion in his book From Puritan to Yankee, in which he describes the political turmoil, uh, the great awakening growing out of it, the religious disorders that grow out of this rapid expansion, although the great awakening goes be extends beyond um, Eastern Connecticut, obviously. But let's move on to a revolution. The revolution posed an interesting problem in the Stamp Act. That was a pre-revolutionary event. There was no ambiguity about how Connecticut regarded that hostily. But it did have a provision in the, the law saying that the governor should swear to uphold it. And he actually got four counselors to administer the oath. And they were rewarded for that by being sacked on the next rotation of election. What's more interesting to me is the Susquehanna Company. Uh, that's a Eastern Connecticut company that is attempting to grab land from Pennsylvania. They're trying to get their charter of 1662, in effect, to take the place of uh, Penn's charter of 1681. The logic behind that is that Pennsylvania is a Quaker colony and uh, it didn't behave very well militarily during the Seven Years' War, and Connecticut did. Connecticut's actually a militarized society by the end of the uh, Seven Years' War. And so uh, if we have a showdown with Britain, and there's a nice short war, and we end up in um, independent, then it'd be nice to have possession of north-central Pennsylvania as well. So um, the, the, the General Assembly starts incorporating the, the, this company enterprise into its official structure. It creates Westmoreland County, accepts representatives from the towns out there in the general court. It's crazy. And instead of a short war, a triumphant war, they get a long war that, that uh, leaves the state uh, economically prostrate. And uh, so that raises the question, of course, of why Connecticut is so victimized by the revolution. And the reason for that uh, is that it, we, we lack any strategic uh, significance and we are vulnerable uh, uh, to uh, loyalist raiding. These are the strategic points. New York, Newport, believe it or not, the only all-weather port in the 18th century between Norfolk, Virginia, and Halifax, and Boston. Here we are in the middle, and also the North River is strategic. Now, one of the things about the 18th century is you can't, it's very hard to hold territory because the range of firepower is only about 50 to 100 yards. <laughs> you can't really hold a lot of, a lot of acres doing that. So what you can do is you can concentrate power and you can take central points. You can't really hold lines, though. But New Long Island is an exception, and it's an exception because they have naval supremacy. So they can actually put their loyalists out to, to pasture on Long Island. Long Island, unfortunately, parallels over 120 miles of Connecticut coast. And one of the problems here is that the Loyalists, who are getting hungry by the time it's apparent that the British aren't going to be able to win, can attack anywhere they want and help themselves, and which they proceed to do, beginning in 1779 and going in for the rest of the war. And there's this enormous kidnapping fest which goes on. Now, that's bad. It could have been worse. It could have been a bloodbath. It was a bloodbath in, in other places, in New Jersey, 
and the Carolinas. I've often wondered why it wasn't. It, it was easier to tap down um, because everyone is vulnerable to everyone else, but it was really miserable. And you couldn't ignore it, so you, or you'd lose control of the, um, the territory. So you had to defend, but you couldn't defend effectively. So the net, net effect of that was you went broke trying. Now, you might ask, where's the Connecticut line? The Connecticut line is stationed defending the strategic North River. That's what uh, sunk us. And it means that the uh, leadership of a state that had brought Connecticut in as a uh, star in the early phases of the revolution was disgraced by the outcome. They, they were exhausted, prostrate, and uh, in deep trouble, and their prospects in the immediate post-war period are bleak, to put it mildly, because there are no new lands. Congress passes judgment against Connecticut's title to north-central Pennsylvania, as well it might have, and at the end of 1782. Our commerce with the West Indies is compromised by the um, restrictions of Europe's commercial empires. And we've got a tax system that is unduly dependent on poles, on uh, population. And uh, this is what happens when you do that. If you raise taxes, they just get in their, their wagons and leave. Walter spent a, a fair amount of time six weeks ago talking about the immigration, particularly in 1817, where, where they really left <laughs> in enormous quantities. But this has been going on for a long time. It's been going on since uh, 1750. And uh, during the 1790s, it is rumored that as many as 100,000 people left Connecticut. And its relevance to what Connecticut federalism is sort of double-edged. That is, when everyone is trying to leave, it's not a good show. On the other hand, you're getting rid of the troublemakers, so you're still in control. So it's a mixed bag, it seems to me. But there are some, what, ironic consequences to this, and one of them is that it allows them to avoid the great mistake that Massachusetts made in 1785, which was to lay a direct tax on its population to try and pay off the revolutionary debts. Massachusetts wanted to do was show that it could be done without getting into bed with the Virginians, whom they distrusted. They didn't want a strong centralized government because they thought they'd be overwhelmed in that. And how that relates to Connecticut Federalists is that Connecticut's a small state than Massachusetts. So, you know, it has to, if it's going to have any weight at all, it has to play ball. Well, they could, they didn't have the capacity to play ball in 1785. And that was a, a great mercy because Shays' Rebellion demonstrates something uh, very important. Shays' Rebellion was an armed insurrection by Revolutionary War veterans in 1786 and 1787. The economy was so bad after the Revolutionary War ended in 1783 that farmers in western Massachusetts were losing their farms because they couldn't pay the high taxes imposed by Massachusetts to pay off its war debt. Rebels shut down courts and attacked the Federal Armory in Springfield to try to capture arms and overthrow the state government. One result of this action was the Constitutional Convention to write the U.S. Constitution. Shays' Rebellion demonstrates something uh, very important, it seems to me, and that is the fragility of state power in this period. It's very fragile and can be disrupted very easily, but it was a mercy that Connecticut avoided that one. 
it re-empowers them. It allows the Canadian delegation in the Philadelphia Convention to play a key role. That You've all heard of the Canadian Compromise. You don't have to go into that. More importantly, there's no significant opposition to ratification of the Constitution in the state ratifying convention. And then, lo and behold, Hamilton's plan bails Connecticut out. Real quick, hopefully we have some 8th graders and high schoolers listening who might not immediately remember that the Connecticut Compromise was proposed by two Connecticut delegates to the U.S. Constitutional Convention, Roger Sherman and Oliver Ellsworth. Their proposal broke the logjam over fair representation for states of different sizes. They proposed a dual system of representation, a House of Representatives in which each state's number of seats would be in proportion to its population, and the Senate in which all states would have the same number of seats. The great irony of this is that Connecticut itself did not have this kind of representation for its towns until 1965. Professor Buell references Alexander Hamilton, the first Secretary of the Treasury under Presidents Washington and Adams. He was succeeded by Litchfield's Oliver Wolcott, the nation's second Secretary of the Treasury, who later becomes the hero of our story, the governor who calls the State Constitutional Convention in 1818. Note to Lynn manuel Miranda, hope you're working on a sequel to your hit Broadway show, Wolcott. It practically writes itself. But seriously, folks, back to Hamilton's bailout of Connecticut. Now, this is something that uh, I think is important, Hamilton's achievement. You've heard, undoubtedly, you've been all taught that Hamilton had a vision of a modern industrial state, which is absolute nonsense. He had no such thing. But he was a brilliant financer, and what he succeeded in doing was transforming a universal liability, which was the revolutionary debt, into a, a universal asset, and that's cool. And the, the way he did that was by financing it through the revenue derived from the impost. And the impost was the one tax you could actually collect with everyone consenting to it because we're still in a colonial economy and you can roll the tax into the price of the goods. You can actually get the merchants to collect it for you. That's so it's a really sweet tax. And you don't pay it unless you individually consent to pay it, which is, um, you know, where, where a revolution has started in protest to taxation. So this is, you know, taxation with consent in a very direct and personal way. And if there was ever a time, then it was the best of times. It was between 1791 and 1796 when the burden of war debt was lifted. Uh, Congress uh, actually confirmed title to the Western Reserve, which was the booby prize for losing the uh, Susquehanna lands. And the state actually succeeds in selling it for, for money, or the promise of money, it turns out. But, you know, it's almost the same thing at that point. And then the, the West India trade revives with the Jay Treaty alignment of the United States with Britain. But all is not entirely well. There are clouds on the horizon. And the clouds are, first of all, that New England is losing stature in relation to the rest of the country, which diminishes New England's voice in the Union. The second thing is that the state's commerce remain dependent on the West Indies. But even more important is that the European war makes good relations with one of great powers, bad relations with the other. And that's demonstrated in the quasi-war of 1798, uh, 1800 with France, and it, uh, that's one of the things that really scares the daylights out of the Connecticut Federalists with Jefferson's election in 1800. 
because they fear his sympathies for France, which are well known, will lead to a war with England, which in turn would necessitate an alliance with France, which would you know, put us into the arms of France and Frenchify or Jackmanize us. And uh, they don't like that. A couple of things to catch you up. Though Connecticut did not succeed in claiming part of Pennsylvania, it did succeed in claiming part of northeastern Ohio. We have a great story about this in our summer 2007 issue. Find a link at ctexplored.org slash constitution. Coming up, Professor Buell mentions the 12th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, ratified in 1804. In case you're thinking that the delegates to the Hartford Convention were crazy to suggest amendments to the U.S. Constitution in 1814, there were already 12 by 1804. The 12th Amendment solved a problem with the Constitution's procedures for voting for president. The first two elections were not a problem because all of the electors voted for George Washington. But 1796 was the first election in which political parties played a role and ran multiple candidates. Then in 1800, there was a tie that took a really long, drawn-out process to get to a winner. In 1800, there were 16 states and 138 electors. Note that those are both even numbers. Each elector placed two votes from the pool of candidates. The top vote-getter would be president. This runner-up would be vice president. Seems simple enough, right? But... For the first time, the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans ran a pair of candidates as running mates, and the top two vote-getters were Thomas Jefferson and his running mate Aaron Burr. Both got 73 electoral votes. The election went to a tie-breaking vote by the House of Representatives. The first vote also ended in a tie, and so did the second, and the next 33. After 35 rounds of voting, Alexander Hamilton finally convinced a few states to switch their vote from Burr to Jefferson, and that's how Jefferson became president. The Twelfth Amendment solved this problem by making distinct and separate ballots for president and vice president. It's clear that the the political revolution of 1800 is going to be irreversible. First of all, because of the Twelfth Amendment, which deprives the Federalists of the kind of leverage they had in the election of 1800. But even more important because of the Louisiana Purchase, which doubles the size of the nation. And so here's poor old little New England way over here, and it's pumping out all sorts of people in this direction, but they don't really like what's left back there. And the future obviously belongs to the Republicans. So that, that's a, a very sober, sobering experience, which seems to be confirmed by the election of 1804, where Connecticut is the only state in New England that gives a Federalist candidate, any electoral votes. Then the uh, situation really begins to, to uh, unravel badly with the intensification of the European War after 1805, and, uh, which increases the chances of a British war. And the reason for that is Britain establishes its supremacy at the sea, Napoleon on land, they can't get each other except through, guess what? Our, our commerce. We've become the largest neutral carrier in the world, and that's actually the thing that's making Hamilton's fiscal program work, but that that creates problems because both of these big bullies are after us simultaneously, and what Jefferson does is respond with an embargo. Now, the embargo has a very bad reputation among among historians. I disagree with that. I think uh, the embargo wasn't so stupid because these people had been through a revolution, knew what a war was like, being fought in their backyard and were grateful that they are being spared it. But the Federalists disagreed and saw it as an opportunity and they also demonized it 
as a Napoleonic measure, and but it did help to authorize Connecticut to contribute to its subversion, which they did rather enthusiastically, and uh, it did collapse in 1809. Connecticut, ironically, is not that reassured by their success in opposing the embargo. And they do something very strange, and that is they recall their big gun, James Hillhouse, who is the, the, the one guy who really is on a par with the Massachusetts leadership, and he's been proposing constitutional amendments since the beginning of time. Uh, and, he, and he's a very impressive guy, but they bring him back, back home to run the school fund. That's more important than national affairs? Uh, well, anyway, they thought so. And why do they think so? Because their principal identity has become exemplifying a uniquely stable Republican state. But that renounces any kind of revolutionary vanguardism that ha they demonstrated early on in 1775 and 76. And it's a terribly defensive attitude towards what they're trying to protect. And it disqualifies them from resisting the war with Britain in 1812. And it's very unwelcome because they haven't forgotten the challenges of a revolutionary war. And Napoleon is the height of his power. But they feel there's no choice but to resist. And of course, they've, they've uh, had some experience with resisting the embargo. They, do the same thing in, in the War of 1812. They refused to place their militia under federal command. They obstruct the recruitment of, a, their, of their citizens into the U.S. armed forces. And they do this in curious ways. I mean, they raise a state force offering twice the pay scale of the United States Army to draw young men out of the United States Army, more than to defend the, the state. And they also informally harass recruiters, and if you're a recruiting officer and you get a recruit, you'll have to be slapped with a writ of habeas corpus to cough the guy back up. It's, it becomes a bad scene. But they have to cooperate with federal forces in 1813 in defending New London. That's because Stephen Decatur brought in HMS Macedonian, a British frigate, to New London. He got a, a British fleet made one think twice about what one was doing next, and they didn't want a repetition of Arnold's raid of 1781. So, and actually, the feds made it easy for them to cooperate. But that all disappears beginning of 1814 with a raid on uh, Petabock Point in April of that year. And that came about because uh, Connecticut, uh, at the end of 1813, said, we're not going to defend our coast. It's your war. You do it. We will cooperate if you pay. The Fed said, well, we're prepared to pay, but you have to put your forces under our command, and that was not a deal. So the fort in Saybrook is allowed to uh, become unoccupied. The British find out about it, come up, burn 25, 26 vessels, and, um, you know, that, that's sort of a, a basic humiliation on all sides. That's a quick summary of Connecticut during the War of 1812. If you'd like to read more, see Connecticut Explored's summer 2012 issue commemorating the War of 1812, including the Battle of Stonington, the Raid on Essex, and the Hartford Convention. We've got a link to it at ctexplore.org slash constitution. Connecticut realizes it has to, to do a little better than that, but it, it, there isn't much between that and the Hartford Convention, right, right where we are right now. And they produce this thing, the, uh, the proceedings of the, the Convention of Delegates, the convention is a brainchild of Massachusetts, incidentally. 
And Connecticut, once again, feels as though it has really no choice but to uh, fall into line. A lot of scholarly energy has been devoted to, to telling us that the convention was, wasn't as bad as it looked, and I'm going to argue that it's actually worse than it looked, and that everyone at the time knew that. Because what's involved is they know there's a British expeditionary force um, proceeding against New Orleans, and they expect that expeditionary force to win because they ha hold southern militias in contempt. They think the South can't defend itself because of slavery. And the, the, after all, the, the expeditionary force is Wellington's veterans from the Peninsula War, and they, they're battle-tested troops. And so when the British end up taking that position, what do they control? The whole rest of the country, its future, and everything else. And so what, what is the Madison administration's options going to be? Well, they're going to have to turn to the only people who are friends of the, the Brits in the United States, and that's the Federalists. And, and so, and they're naming their price in advance. Their price is, you know, we're going to, we want a constitutional revision. Now, they actually tone it down a little, but if um, the, it had come to push, it had come to shove, and, and the administration had yielded, the price probably would have gone right up. What they really wanted to get rid of was the three-fifths clause. So when they lose the bet, the British don't take New Orleans, and, and instead the Republicans get a, an honorable peace, Anyone associated with the Hartford Convention has lost all credibility, particularly if they think they're exemplifying an ideal republicanism, because these people are a minority, and in a republic, a majority is supposed to run the show. And of course, it didn't help, but they were simultaneously pioneering the nullifying of a, of a federal law. Uh, but both behaviors made them vulnerable. So this Defensive ideology, I have argued, had led them into, into a cul-de-sac. Actually, their vulnerability has an advantage. They realize that their opponents are going to work within the system. So it's not going to be like France. And then, much to their surprise, and also the Republicans' surprise, they're more Federalists in that convention than, than anyone expected. And the Constitution of 1818 actually is far better to the hole they found themselves and dug themselves into by 1815 because it embodies many values shared with their opponents. So, you know, they, in the convention, they realize, you know, that they occupy the same world to a large extent. But the most important thing, final irony, this is the beginning of peace, quintessential battle of the, the Napoleonic Wars. This is Wellington Squares resisting the uh, French cavalry charge at Waterloo. It puts an end to 20 years of constant warfare with only one brief intermission. And actually, France and Britain have never been at each other's throats since then. It, it brings about a peaceful world. And if I'm right, that to understand what's really going on in Connecticut, you have to look beyond the borders of a state and maybe even beyond the borders of the country. This, I think, is the most significant thing in, in bringing back about the pacification of Connecticut politics with the Constitution of 1818. Thank you. Up next in the third of our Constitution of 1818 series is Attorney Wesley Horton, President of the Connecticut Supreme Court Historical Society, and his discussion of the Constitutional Convention's debates. What was it like inside the old State House as the 200 delegates considered a state constitution to replace the Charter of 1662? 
Find out on the next episode of Grading the Nutmeg. Thanks for listening. We thank Professor Richard Buell and Connecticut's Old State House. This episode was produced by Elizabeth Norman. Subscribe to Connecticut Explored and get the special fall 2018 issue commemorating the 200th anniversary of the Constitution of 1818, including a pullout poster of the full text of the Constitution annotated by members of the Connecticut Supreme Court Historical Society at ctexplore.org. Find a link to curriculum materials and further reading at ctexplore.org slash constitution. This episode was sponsored by attorney Peter Bowman, helping the seriously injured and holding distracted drivers accountable for their actions. More at bowman.legal. And Connecticut Humanities, co-publisher of Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. Visit cthumanities.org. This is Walt Woodward, hoping you'll join us next time for another episode of Grading the Nutmeg. Thank you.